0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
1: I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too.
2: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Happy Saturday, everybody. P.T. Barnum has gotten a couple of name drops on the show lately, and there is another coming up this week. So we are bringing out our episode on him as today's classic.
1: This originally came out on May 16th, 2012, from previous
2: hosts of the show, Sarah and Dublina. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy,
0: And I'm Dablina Chakraborty.
3: And we have a few podcast regulars who we like to talk about. Queen Victoria, of course, seems to pop up in the most unlikely of episodes, as does Arthur Conan Doyle. Lord Byron had a little run there for a while. But P.T. Barnum may have the strangest record of all of those folks, I think. If an episode takes place in the 19th century, you'll often find P.T. Barnum somewhere in it, trying to buy something, trying to hustle something someone. And once I learned a little bit more about his life, though, those regular appearances seemed a lot less unlikely because in life he really was everywhere, buying odds and ends off of folks, cooking up hoaxes entertaining celebrities, even running for state legislature.
0: Today, of course, we think of P.T. Barnum as the great circus man, the guy behind the greatest show on earth, along with his cohort and former competitor, James Bailey. The Barnum and Bailey Circus, which eventually teamed up with Ringling Brothers Circus, became the premier circus in the U.S. So if you've seen one circus in the States, it's probably Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey. But while Barnum helped to make the Three Ring Circus the massive spectacle we know today, he really didn't get into the business until he was in his 60s. For most of his entertainment career, Barnum ran a curiosity museum filled with waxworks, funhouse mirrors, and other strange stuff like taxidermy hybrid animals. He also ran 10-in-1 shows, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, and he managed menageries. And he just really promoted everything he did, earning the nickname, the Prince of Humbug. Which it's interesting to to point out
3: here that Humbug had the same meaning then as it does today, you know, being deceitful on purpose. But it also was the equivalent of what today we'd call hype. And I think that's really the point to remember when thinking about Barnum. He was a, a hype man. He was the Prince of Humbug. To the and end. He really was. So Phineas Taylor Barnum was born July 5, 1810 in Bethel, Connecticut. His father was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He was a tailor, a farmer, a tavern keeper. And as a kid, P.T. Barnum worked the farm but also showed his business streak pretty early. According to his New York Times obituary, he sold homemade molasses candy, which sounds pretty good, and gingerbread and even some sort of moonshine he'd make called cherry rum. Not quite as appetizing as the molasses candy in Gingerbread, I think.
0: When Barnum was 15, his father died, leaving him to care for his mother and his five sisters and brothers. This started a string of jobs and moves to get away from manual farm work because he really disliked it. He worked in a general store, moved to Brooklyn, and came home to Bethel to open his own store at age 18. Then he got married at 19 to a local girl named Charity Hallett. He published a weekly paper called The Herald of Freedom in Danbury, Connecticut, and was arrested three times for libel gives you a little peek at his his future career too (laughs) but it was his 1835
3: move back to new york city at the age of 25 that really got him into show business and compared to his later insistence on family-friendly entertainment his first gigs in new york were considered quote low amusements according to Timothy Guilfoyle in the Journal of the History of Sexuality. He'd run minstrel shows. He'd write ads for the Bowery Amphitheater in the very rough Five Points neighborhood. And he would talent scout there, too. He discovered acts like William Henry Lane, who was better known later as Juba, a black dancer who broke into the all-white minstrel shows. But Barnum's first really big discovery was an old woman named Joyce Heth. And Heth claimed to have been born in 1674 which would have made her 161 years old but even more impressively she claimed to have been the nurse for the young
0: George Washington. She was blind and frail but she'd smoke a pipe and tell visitors stories about Washington as a boy. To kind of authenticate these outrageous stories Barnum presented her alongside her 1727 bill of sale to George Washington's father. So no surprise probably, that this was eventually exposed as a hoax, but it certainly convinced Barnum that showbiz was worth his while. With Heth and his act, he earned $750 a week.
3: So in 1841, after that first big success with Heth, Barnum decided that he wanted to go into the museum business. And it may be kind of hard to understand why a hoax-promoting former minstrel show ad man would want to get into museums, but David A. Norris, writing in History Magazine, helped explain a little bit to me how different and uncommon American museums were in the 1840s from what they are today. And one of the country's earliest museums would was called Peel's and it was in Independence Hall in Philadelphia. It was established in 1784 by Charles Wilson Peel and visitors who were going there could just see a real mixed bag of stuff, folk clothing from around the world, a quote, tiger cat, even lava from Mount Vesuvius, or at least something billed as lava from Mount Vesuvius. The first mastodon skeleton shown in the United States was there. And there were also plant and animal specimens from Lewis and Clark's expedition.
0: So anything you could imagine could be found apparently at Peel's Museum. Another major museum in the style of Peel's was that of John Scudder who ran his from a five-story marble building in New York City. When Scudder's closed in 1841, Barnum tried to buy it, but was beat out by representatives from Peel's who paid for the building in stock. When that stock collapsed, though, Barnum wound up being able not only to buy Scudder's, but quite a few of Peel's exhibits, too. He reopened this as barnum's american museum and kept some of the flavor of the old style museums including the menageries taxidermies exotic items from around the world but he also added another popular element of the day which was freak shows
3: okay so it's time to talk a little bit about the tradition of so-called freak shows because if we just jump right into it it's going to seem a little bit out of place According to Laura Grand in History Magazine, the tradition of freak shows had really been around for quite some time by the time Barnum was getting into the business, really since the early 1600s, right around the time that many people stopped seeing major physical abnormalities as some kind of divine
0: punishment or bad omen. But in the 19th century, the exhibition of people with physical abnormalities bearded ladies, for example, or thin men, really started to pick up. Ten-in-one shows would exhibit ten performers, usually a mix of physically unusual people with folks with unusual talents, such as sword swallowing or fire eating. So two of the earliest American freak show stars were Chang and Eng, conjoined twins. The original Siamese twins, of
3: course. And basically... Visitors would walk by these 10 performers and look at them. It's something that sounds very awkward and uncomfortable today, but these shows were really getting very popular in the 19th century. And Barnum's technique of combining these 10-in-1 shows and other types of freak show acts with a curiosity-filled museum proved to be a major hit. Visitors would flood to his American museum, paying 25 cents for the privilege
0: of seeing his curated collection from around the world. He billed the place as admission to everything. And in addition to a sideshow type performances, he staged beauty pageants, cultural exhibits and dramatics like adaptations of Harriet Beecher Stowe's novels or those of Charles Dickens, who was incidentally a visitor.
3: So the museum was open six days a week, 15 hours a day. He was a real modern businessman. I mean, I even think that admission to everything sounds kind of like a slogan you would hear today, <laughs> um, but while many sideshows at the time featured adults-only entertainment, Barnum was really big on bringing the whole family. And once the whole family was there, though, he would hustle them through the exhibits by displaying a large sign in the back labeled "egress," and so people would wonder what's an egress you know it's just beyond that door i need to go see and then once they'd get there they'd realize oh egress is just another word for exit and they'd have to pay if they wanted to get back in again
0: happy pride from tomboy x we just dropped our pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit tomboyx.com to shop The museum's first big hit was the Fiji Mermaid, supposedly caught by a Japanese fisherman. But this was really just a hoax personally engineered by Barnum. It was a monkey's body sewn onto a large fishtail. Other attractions over the years included a giant python and electric eels, an albino beauty, the wild boy who is an exceptionally hairy child, Pharaoh's chariot wheel, Rosa Richter, the human cannonball, Annie Jones, the bearded lady, Isaac W. Sprague, the American human skeleton, Crow Farini, the missing link, the wonder of the world who was an armless man who used his feet to do tricks like firing a pistol or playing an instrument. In 1861, Barnum even added a white whale to his menageries, pipes would supply it with fresh seawater.
3: And he'd also include hoaxes of hoaxes, like the fake version of the already fake Cardiff giant we discussed in our historical hoaxes episode from last summer. After Barnum's offer to buy the real fake giant was turned down, he just made his own and started saying, well, that one is fake. I have the real one. Uh, I think ultimately he was sued and the judge ruled both of your giants are fake. This is a (laughs) non-issue. Barnum, Self was also something of an attraction at his museum, much like Madame Tussaud was at her waxworks. He was fairly striking, six-two, balding. He had blue eyes and a giant nose and a pot belly and was always there, always roaming around if he wasn't out looking for
0: new curiosities to bring to it. Barnum's real name maker, though, was his own distant cousin, Charles Stratton. And we'll talk a little bit more about Stratton's life later, maybe in a different episode. He and Barnum went from being manager and child performer to being business partners and lifelong friends. But Stratton's appearance as General Tom Thumb introduced Barnum to really new heights of fame. Stratton, who was a little person 25 inches tall when he was discovered by Barnum at age five, was trained to sing, dance, and do comic impressions. He was a natural ham and an actor and met folks like Abraham Lincoln and even – Queen Victoria. There she is again. We need to start
3: keeping a tally here. <laughs> but Barnum had ambitions outside of the museum, even though Tom Thumb made him a huge hit in this world. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, he wanted to be an impresario too, and he recruited the Swedish soprano Jenny Lynn to make that happen. She's somebody who appeared in our Hans Christian Andersen episode. He had She was his celebrity crush, essentially. Even though Barnum hadn't Ever seen Lynde, hadn't ever heard her sing. He latched onto her, decided that she would be his ticket to the real big time, and publicized her as the Swedish Nightingale. He publicized her so successfully that 40,000 people were waiting for her upon her arrival in the United States. She toured for about nine months to sell out shows and really became one of the earliest marketing sensations, too. She had all this tie-in merchandise connected to her, like a Jenny Lynn bonnet, a Jenny Lynn porcelain set, all sorts of things that are easy to imagine today, but were fairly unusual at the time.
0: Barnum also got into politics. He served twice in the Connecticut legislature and as mayor of Bridgeport, where he was an especially strong opponent of racial discrimination and of prostitution. In 1848, he became a teetotaler, hiring undercover detectives to patrol his museum for anyone who could be maybe sneaking in a drink. Or just
3: any low people. He was very concerned about them potentially being in his museum. Kind of
0: odd considering
3: his earlier
0: showbiz career. Exactly. When he got into real estate in the 1850s. He'd even have leasers or buyers sign covenants banning the use of liquor or tobacco on the property. He even eventually made his performers swear off alcohol and ran a temperance play at the museum for 100 shows. So to mark
3: all of his achievements in life at this point in politics and the business world, Barnum decided to build a palace. And you can't imagine somebody like Barnum building a little understated house. But this really was a palace. It was on 17 acres in Connecticut. He called it Iranistan. And the inspiration for the building was Brighton's Royal Pavilion, which I saw when I was in ninth grade, I think. And it's a pr- you can look up a picture of it. It's pretty elaborate. Anything that it's the inspiration for would be pretty elaborate too, I'd imagine. He entertained big names there too, people like Mark Twain, Horace Greeley. But in 1857, Barnum's luck started to turn. The palace burned down, which started a chain of misfortune that eventually drove Barnum, coincidentally, into the circus business.
0: He lost his money, though, through bad investments in a clock business and saw his museum burn down twice. During the Civil War, Confederate spies had plotted to set fires throughout New York City, including one at Barnum's. The plot failed, but the museum burned down just a few months later anyway. After twice rebuilding his museum and twice losing it to fire, he switched to a menagerie but saw this burn down, too, in 1873. That same year, his wife Charity died.
3: And to outward appearances, after Charity died, Barnum waited 10 months before remarrying 22-year-old Nancy Fish, who was 44 years younger than him. According to that Guilfoyle article we mentioned earlier, though, he was actually remarried after only 13 weeks and before he had even returned home to the United States following Charity's death. The whole thing was super, super secret. Nobody knew about it except the couple. And the marriage certificate wasn't even found until 1994. So he really took the secret to the grave. Barnum's remarriage also coincided with his entrance into the circus world, though. He started a traveling show and called it the Great Traveling World's Fair. It was really bigger than most of the circuses of the day, and Barnum would even arrange, it was so big, in fact, that it would have to be way on the outskirts of town, so Barnum would arrange these excursion trains so that people in cities could easily come to his show. He could just shuttle them back and forth and get more customers that way.
0: In 1880, he merged with the Great London Circus, Sanger's Royal British Menagerie, and the Grand International Allied Shows, and later became the Barnum and Bailey Circus, better known as the Greatest Show on Earth, which we talked about in the intro. Barnum, of course, didn't invent the modern circus, but by working with Bailey, he helped make it the giant, really spectacular event that we know it as today, rather than the sort of small-time entertainment it was in the past.
3: Exactly. And Barnum's 1882 purchase of Jumbo the African Elephant also helped to make this act a hit, really helped to make the Barnum and Bailey Circus get off the ground. Jumbo is another subject we're going to save for later. He has a pretty interesting story, but he was popular enough that his name caught on as a term for Jumbo, really, really big. Uh, That's just a little hint of how crazy Jumbo's ultimate story is, though.
0: The Prince of Humbug stayed devoted to self-promotion to the end, too. In 1884, he moved his autobiography into the public domain because he was more concerned with attracting readers than making money off of it. In 1891, at the age of 81, and clearly dying at this point, he had a New York obituary published ahead of schedule so that he could read it and enjoy his own hype before he passed away.
3: So P.T. Barnum died April 7th, 1891 in Bridgeport, leaving most of his estate to his sole grandson. And aside from his circus legacy, of course, I think Barnum is probably most famous for a quote that he likely never said, and that's, of course, there's a sucker born every." Every minute. We might have mentioned that in the Cardiff Giant episode. One quote that might suit him a little better, though, and one that he really did say is that people, quote, appear disposed to be amused even when they are conscious of being deceived. And he got a lot of flack for some of his deceptions. I think he was pretty frank about them in his autobiography. But he stuck by it to a certain extent, revised some things in his, in his biography. But was fairly open about the deceptions he had committed and how he did them and how it was all just in good fun if
0: you still enjoyed the show. According to his biographer, Candace Fleming, when he was asked whether he wished he had done something more important with his life, he said, quote, Amusement may not be the great aim of life, but it gives zest to our days.
3: So what are you waiting for? Start
1: streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping?